0: Please welcome to the stage Dr. Gary Lyman, who will be speaking on biosimilars and oncology clinical pathways, perfect together. This session is supported by an educational grant from Coheris Biosciences and Pfizer, and there will be polling questions for this one. Thank you so much. Uh, Obviously, we've uh, dwindled in numbers, but uh, that's to be expected. My job is to make sure you miss your plane uh, this afternoon, and uh, and then hold somebody else responsible. But uh, thanks for joining. Uh, So as was mentioned, I will be discussing biosimilars and their role in terms of integration into clinical pathways. And uh, I hope to convince you over the next few minutes that this is a good fit and and it makes a great deal of sense uh, to integrate biosimilars. Uh, But I understand there remain concerns, apprehensions, and some level of uncertainty about what these are and and how they're approved and uh, whether they're really safe to use in clinical practice, uh, whether they're in pathways and guidelines or not. So uh, we'll go forward with this. Uh, I believe I'm Gary Lyman at the Fred Hutch and University of Washington. Uh, These are my disclosures. And in addition to uh, some consulting, I uh, chaired the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO Working Group on Biosimilars, and I'll refer to that as we go through the presentation. Uh, These are the learning objectives. I was told not to spend any time on this because you've probably seen them. So uh, in in way of introduction, uh, I don't need to convince you uh, and and hopefully your colleagues that biological therapies uh, derived from living systems have really revolutionized I would say medicine in general, many areas of medicine, but most notably in clinical oncology and in the treatment and care of cancer patients. Uh, With the beneficial effects of biologics, uh, while they're clear from randomized controlled trials, we've talked a a fair amount about trials in this meeting, the economic impact of these uh, medicines Uh, has placed an enormous financial burden on patients, families, and society. These are very expensive medicines. You've heard that time and again. Uh, And the burden on patients uh, has uh, really uh, climbed uh, precipitously over the last uh, decade to decade and a half. Such uh, what we're calling financial toxicity may limit drug access uh, to these exciting and potentially curative biologic therapies and may result in some patients who could be cured, perhaps stopping treatment early uh, with uh, uh, potentially devastating consequences. Uh, one strategy that's been proposed uh, in legislation uh, by the FDA, supported by uh, the, uh, the, uh, the White House, the President's Cancer Panel, firstly a, cr- a broad spectrum of support for the introduction uh, development, regulatory approval, and integration of biosimilars into uh, uh, clinical practice, and th- this uh, ag- again has come with some complexity, uh, and that 's what we 're going to dive in uh, today. but the goal primary goal here is to bring competition and, and bring down the price of these expensive drugs and as a aftermath, uh, improve access and reduce the financial burden on patients uh, with uh, cancer. So, and, and at the end we'll talk about, the tw- there are now 23 uh, FDA approved biosimilars uh, in the US. Uh, there are actually many more in Europe and I'll mention that uh, briefly. Uh, these are based on far more preclinical analytic, uh, looking at uh, structural and functional characterization uh, using a vast array of analytic tools Uh, some uh, preclinical data in terms of animal uh, uh, safety and efficacy testing, Uh, and then in humans, more limited data than we're used to seeing with uh, drug approval in the U.S., uh, including uh, the originator biologics. Um, So there may be, uh, well, there always will be uh, PKPD data, some immunogenicity testing, uh, but not the requirement for multiple large randomized comparative trials, uh, that we've grown used to. And this is what I think makes uh, some concerned uh, whether efficacy and safety of these agents is comparable uh, and uh, non-inferior to uh, the originator biologic therapies we've come to know and love over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. So why the need for biosimilars? This should be quite intuitive, both from my comments and from your experience. Uh, that is the cost of medical care in, in the U.S. has for decades now exceeded that of the increase in the gross domestic product. Nowhere is that more evident in the rise in cost of cancer care, not cancer medical care, and even uh, more so uh, the rise in the, the, the cost of uh, cancer medications, cancer drugs, and these uh, the poster child for this are the biologic therapies. So I show on the right-hand side uh, uh, the, uh, the top uh, Medicare spends on drugs. And if you look down this list, seven of these 10 uh, top uh, agents are agents that we use in oncology. Uh, so again, this is a big driver of this increase in the cost of health care. Another way to look at it is to look at uh, the expenditures for U.S. medications. And you can see that 30%, nearly a third of Uh, the the expenditures on medical care in the U.S. is from these top five therapy areas, and number one on the list is oncology. uh, uh, One other way to look at this is the price of these drugs and what's happened to them, uh, the price uh, at or shortly after FDA approval. Uh, The data data out of work from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering looking at the cost of cancer drugs at the date of FDA approval. And uh, you may not see it there, but there is a, a, an orange line that shows the median rise, uh, which now is exceeding $10,000 per month in terms of the cost of, of uh, cancer drugs that are approved by the FDA. And you see the scatter plot. Uh, some of these are far more than, uh, than that median. So biologic therapies, uh, both in the U.S. and globally, uh, the spending on these has increased dramatically also over the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, You can see global biologic sales uh, up through 2017. In 2018, data has continued on this trend uh, well over $200 billion globally. They continue to outpace uh, overall spending growth in other areas and uh, now have uh, basically reached about 20% of the global market uh, value. Uh, this raises these concerns, we'll come back to, about whether this is going to limit, complicate patient access to these drugs, which again can be potentially curative or prolong uh, survival, uh, and or, and, or lead them or their families in enormous financial debt. Another, uh, one final way to look at this is at the patient level. And this is uh, an interesting graphic that I think says a lot. Uh, and the, uh, the issue is that median household income in the U.S. has remained essentially flat. Some indications may have even gone down in terms of effective purchasing power. Uh, at the same time, and that's shown in the red line, horizontal line. At the same time, the the median monthly cost of new anti-cancer drugs in the U.S. has risen precipitously since the mid-90s and has long surpassed that of the median monthly household income for uh, uh, U.S. households. So, uh, again, there's no indication that this trend has uh, uh, slowed very much and uh, I think we can say without a doubt that this is posing an enormous challenge for a large proportion of patients with cancer under our care. So, what are these biosimilars that we're hoping will help? Uh, obviously, it's not the whole solution. We have lots of structural uh, problems within our healthcare financing uh, situation, but uh, it, it is hoped uh, that the biosimilars will be a piece in the puzzle of solving uh, some of these uh, dilemmas. So the FDA has formally defined a biosimilar as a uh, a, a biologic product, like the originator biologic, but one that is highly similar, uh, parenthetically, not identical, but highly similar to a US licensed reference biologic product for which there are no clinically meaningful differences in safety, purity, or potency. Uh, so this is a formal definition, and of course it requires some, uh, uh, some actual implementation. But I think the best way to think of this is comparing these uh, biologic therapies and, and, uh, in general, and biosimilars included, on the right-hand side, illustrated by a monoclonal antibody, to simple, small chemical agents uh, that can be synthesized in the laboratory uh, precisely exactly, uh, we have generics, uh, their structure is extremely is, is completely well defined um, it can be reproduced, uh, completely characterized. These are generally pretty stable molecules, and uh, with few ex- ex- exap- uh, exceptions that are not immunogenic Genetic. so uh, the Monoclonal antibodies, or biologics in general, on the other hand, are very large, complex uh, agents with, uh, uh, th- that are, have a high molecular weight. Uh, they're produced in living systems, so again, they can't be replicated exactly uh, due to variability in the biologic processes and the, and the processes used to, uh, to develop them. Uh, they may, many of them are relatively unstable and, and sensitive to external conditions. And again, because these are large proteins, uh, they may be immunogenic. So uh, stark contrast to uh, agents going back a couple of decades that we, and, and still use today. So uh, we published a paper in the New England Journal uh, uh, about a year ago on, uh, to basically try to summarize the evidence uh, around these agents and uh, educate uh, both general practitioners and oncologists on uh, the opportunities and reality of biosimilar medications. The requirements the FDA has established for biosimilarity are fairly simple and succinct. Uh, The biologic product must be highly similar to the reference product, notwithstanding minor differences in clinically inactive components. At the same time, there can be no clinically meaningful differences between the biologic product, the biosimilar, and the reference product, uh, the originator, in terms of safety, purity, and potency. And the process for getting approval uh, of of a biosimilar uh, that the FDA follows is one that we consider to be stepwise evidence development, uh, and that's illustrated on the right. So again, the base is where a great deal of the focus goes. Uh, And and we now have well over 60 analytic quality metrics that these agents must go through and demonstrate uh, that they're highly similar to those reflected by the originator in terms of, uh, again, uh, structure and functional characterization. And then there's uh, preclinical data. Again, this is done generally in animal systems And then the clinical data is heavily uh, done around pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, and immunogenicity. And much of this is often done in healthy volunteers because these are generally individuals who are not immunosuppressed and are probably gonna be more sensitive to reflecting some of the potential toxicities of the pharmacokinetic, uh, pharmacodynamic changes that may, uh, may impact on the distribution of these agents. And then, uh, if needed, and and, uh, to some extent, there will be clinical data, uh, often some comparative clinical data between the biosimilar and the originator. uh, But the goal of that is merely to look and say, is there still uncertainty if the biosimilar uh, is not uh, truly highly similar to the originator? And then the FDA has the discretion to require and impose additional clinical trials. And again, we'll come back to this. A little easier to see in this uh, stepwise process. We start with the analytic studies, again, looking at the structure of the biosimilar and its functional uh, characterization. At each step, as we go up, the FDA evaluates the totality of evidence that comes out of the previous step and determines whether further studies are needed. There's always a need for some animal studies, uh, in this process, and then early human studies looking at PKPD and immunogenicity. And then, as I said, if residual uncertainty remains, uh, there may be a requirement for additional clinical studies, including comparative randomized trials, but generally smaller trials, uh, some often phase two studies, not uh, multiple large phase three uh, trials. So there are a few new concepts, or at least uh, not totally new, but uh, ones that I think uh, are unclear to to many of my colleagues as they talk on this subject around the country. One of these is this concept of extrapolation. Uh, So generally the, the approach here is, a company develops a biosimilar, decides on what label, what indication they're going to go for, and, and does both the preclinical and clinical studies necessary to demonstrate high similarity or biosimilarity uh, to the originator. Uh, and if uh, things go well, and the FDA approves it for that indication, Uh, uh, it can be marketed uh, uh, for that particular uh, disease or or, or clinical situation. However, many biologic therapies, as you know, have multiple indications, multiple diseases or multiple uh, scenarios uh, of a disease, early stage versus advanced stage disease and so forth. So uh, the, uh, the act that... Established the process for biosimilarity, gave the FDA discretion uh, to extrapolate based on the evidence presented for the initial indication and any additional uh, scientific justification for ex- granting extrapolation to other clinical scenarios. And if the FDA is satisfied, Again, they have the discretion to grant extrapolation without, again, requiring additional clinical trials to establish uh, the, the, uh, uh, the eff- efficacy and safety of that agent in these other settings. Keep that, c- compare that to what the originator had to do for each new indication, each new label, a whole new set of data, uh, a clinical data, had to be uh, submitted uh, to grant that uh, other indication. But for biosimilarity, the the argument being that if you required all that data on each new uh, highly similar agent, uh, the cost of f- developing those agents will be at least as much, maybe even more than the originator, and you wouldn't accomplish the uh, the one goal, the major goal here, of developing these agents at a lower cost, allowing them to uh, price reduce and compete with the originator. Now there is a there is a, 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 a there are a number of steps. Again, a company needs to go through to establish uh, the justification for extrapolation to the FDA. And it is important to note that extrapolation is not an automatic thing. And you will see already biosimilars on the marketplace that were not granted extrapolation for other uh, situations. So, again, the biosimilar has to be given approval for its initial submitted uh, application an indication. In addition, however, they may be granted extrapolation if they can demonstrate that the mechanism of action for the other indications uh, is essentially the same. Uh, they're, they're binding, molecular signaling is essentially same, the same, their location, the receptors for these different indications the same. And then uh, with PKPD PD ta- data, they can demonstrate that, uh, and support that the mechanism of action of the agent for these other indications is is essentially the same. Now, in addition to that, however, there are are possibilities that a different indication in a different population would reflect or express different toxicities, or patients may have different set of comorbidities uh, or concomitant medications. So if if the situation, if the patient population Uh, or or the conditions of use are sufficiently different than the original indication for which they achieved approval, the FDA may say, we won't grant you that extrapolation until you provide us with more data. So, again, uh, they have the discretion, but it's not an automatic thing. The other major issue here, and we've already alluded to this, is biologic agents, including biosimilars and originator or reference products, uh, are uh, sources of variability. Uh, th- these uh, drugs, these agents, uh, because they're produced in living systems, they undergo fermentation conditions, uh, different raw materials, uh, uh, protein purification methods may differ. Uh, there's all sorts of steps that kind of illustrated uh, in, the, uh, in, in this diagram on the, on the right-hand side here where variability can creep into the process. So even though you start off with the same vector, you start off with the same cell system, uh, you try to do things exactly the same, uh, there may well be differences in uh, in structure or even functional uh, characterization of the biosimilar in the end. So all this has to be monitored. It has to be demonstrated by the, uh, the, the company that the. Agent is is again highly similar within the boundaries that the FDA has established, and then over time uh, and we 'll get get into this more there is the potential uh, for drift occurring uh, drift being that because of changes in manufacturing uh, the, the the components that go into that process, uh, the geography, there may be some changes unavoidably going to be some changes in these molecules over time uh, and, and if that, those changes affect critical areas in the molecule in this complex protein, uh, there could be a, a, a change in efficacy or a change in, in safety. So there's a requirement not only up front to demonstrate high similarity to the, to the reference product, but then over time, anytime you change manufacturing facilities or processes, uh, you need to re-demonstrate uh, to the FDA that critical functionality, the high similarity of these agents has not um, you know, changed in a clinically meaningful way. I would emphasize, however, and I'm going to illustrate this in a second, that both the original biologic therapy and the biosimilar are subject to this drift, In other words, they're both fundamentally complex proteins, large molecular weight proteins uh, with complicated uh, manufacturing processes that you saw, and they're both subject to this drift and therefore both requiring continuous monitoring uh, for efficacy and safety. So I'm going to illustrate this with a a, a project uh, that, that I've been involved with the last couple of years, Uh, That's, uh, I think, both uh, concerning, but uh, hopefully eye-opening, and a, uh, you know, a a warn up, uh, uh, a a warning flag to us that we really need to monitor uh, the uh, these agents over time. So, one of the biosimilars that the FDA has approved uh, undertook uh, all the necessary processes, analytic. Characterization of structure and function, PKPD studies, and then did comparative clinical trial uh, between the originator. This is for uh, uh, the originator Herceptin, and the biosimilar Trastuzumab uh, that they were trying to get FDA approval for. And in that trial, uh, uh, they found, to their surprise uh, and somewhat shock, that the biosimilar. Results seem to be superior to the originator. And, you know, they, they're, they're puzzled. All the PKPD studies were, uh, showed high similarity. It seemed to be the same molecule uh, to uh, the, the originator, uh, but when they ran the clinical trial, uh, there seemed to be some superiority. And, in fact, the FDA will not grant biosimilarity status to an agent that is demonstrated to be superior to the originator, uh, uh, something you might call bio-better, it has to be within these boundaries. And they're kind of illustrated uh, here uh, for this one performance characteristic. Again, there are 67 now currently in the FDA portfolio uh, of quality metrics that these agents go through. Uh, But for each of these, they should fall within these boundaries to demonstrate comparability for that metric. So this one uh, here is for ADCC, uh, uh, for uh, Herceptin or Trastuzumab, so it's antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. Some uh, still believe that this is a critical action of uh, Trastuzumab in terms of its anti-cancer activity. Uh, but when they went back and uh, said, we gotta figure out why the biosimilar is doing better than the originator, Uh, They looked at all these characteristics, but what they did is they obtained multiple batches of the originator over time. And what you can see illustrated here uh, is, uh, if I can go back here, uh, is that there was a drift, uh, and this is, the dots here uh, on this graph uh, represent uh, uh, European version of Herceptin, U.S. version of Herceptin, and then Herceptin, used in the clinical trial. So there are different colors here, but they all show the same thing, that in uh, recent batches, uh, there was a drift where the ADCC performance fell below FDA criteria for that metric. So the question is, does that matter? Uh, How important is it? Uh, And does it explain why there seemed to be some advantage to the biosimilar over the originator? So they continued their trial, and we just published in the European Journal of Cancer the three-year data. We now have four-year data on this, which has basically shown the same thing, uh, that patients who received the the biosimilar, which is uh, uh, shown, uh, it's a little hard to see, but it's the top curve here. uh, 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 It's the blue curve, uh, so it overlaps with Uh, this red curve which represents the originator that had not drifted. So patients in the trial who received either the biosimilar or the originator Herceptin but undrifted versions uh, uh, did the best. But patients who received one or more batches of the drifted product uh, seemed to have a, a greater rate of recurrence and a greater mortality rate. And these reach statistical significance. But I would caution you that this is retrospective subgroup analyses. We don't have data on all these patients. And this was not an a priori uh, hypothesis that was raised. But it does, I think, bring to mind the fact that both the originator and the biosimilar can drift over time if we're not particularly cautious in monitoring these. And this study will go out for uh, at least for five years, and we'll see if that, uh, those differences uh, remain. Now, I- again, somewhat reassuring is that in the most recent uh, batches, uh, there seems to be a recovery of ADCC performance in the originator. Uh, so uh, somebody figured it out and got things on top of it. But, uh, I- again, this is a message that drift, is, up until now, has been a hypothetical concern. Uh, largely for the biosimilar products. Uh, But it's, number one, uh, a thing that can happen to both originator and biosimilars, and number two, it's no longer hypothetical. It can occur, and it has occurred in time. And if that drift involves critical functionality of the molecule, it may impact on patients going forward. So, finally, this issue of immunogenicity, of course, it's a concern of all biologics. Again, these are large complex proteins. Uh, If it it involves a neutralizing antibody uh, or involves a critical portion of the molecule, of course, there can be loss of efficacy. And of course, there's always this uh, concern or possibility of an allergic response, sometimes severe anaphylaxis. uh, immunogenicity is something that's tested at the very beginning and needs to be monitored uh, throughout changes in the development and uh, implementation of biosimilars. So, the last thing, and this is uh, this is a concept which I think is completely foreign until recently, and that's interchangeability and substitution. And uh, the uh, the legislation that established uh, the the biologic and bio Biosimilars Price Protection and Innovation uh, Act st- said uh, the FDA had the authority to establish a, a higher level of approval beyond biosimilarity, and that is interchangeable biosimilarity. And in turn, CMS uh, could implement uh, reimbursement or uh, 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 rules for uh, compensation that reflected that. Well, to date, there have been no uh, uh, no... Products that have been requested to obtain interchangeability status. So no companies come forward and requested interchangeability. Uh, uh, So biosimilars have to first establish biosimilarity, but then they would need to provide additional clinical data, uh, and uh, that's just not been done. However, if a company comes forward with data and the FDA says you're not only a, a, an approved biosimilar, but you're an interchangeable biosimilar, the rules state that they could grant substitution with that interchangeable biosimilar without the intervention provider. In other words, you could, you could order uh, the originator or a different biosimilar, and an interchangeable biosimilar could be uh, substituted. Now, again, caution uh, that, again, none have been so submitted or approved Uh, And number two, that state substitution laws, and now well over 35 states have uh, passed laws that would presumably preempt this, uh, that would prevent this automatic substitution without notification. Can't prevent the automatic substitution necessarily if it's an interchangeable, uh, but there'd be a requirement uh, for the provider uh, to be notified. So that's that's p- potential in the future, but I think it's important to understand. Now, the nomenclature here has confused a lot of folks, uh, and I think I'll just quickly uh, review it here. Yeah, you're, uh, the reason for nomenclature that's been established is the importance of tracking the specific agent, the specific biosimilar over time, in terms of pharmacovigilance. You know, yes, we feel very confident in the processes put in place uh, that the uh, biosimilars that have been approved are safe and efficacious for the indications given. Uh, But, you know, rare or delayed effects may occur and we want to make sure that we can trace any adverse event, unexpected or loss of efficacy back to a specific agent. So the processes have been put in place and there's a lot of, uh, a consternation about this is that the names of these agents have two components. There's the core name, uh, the non-proprietary name that you, uh, uh, you see here in blue on the, the right-hand side. And then there's a random four-digit suffix to that that identifies the specific biosimilar uh, that uh, that patient presumably receives. Uh, these are random uh, with the exception of uh, this middle one, SNDZ, which was approved before the nomenclature process was put into place. So you can infer which company makes that particular agent. And that was the first biosimilar approved in the US. But then these rules are put in place. For all future biosimilars, there'll be the somewhat arbitrary uh, or random four letter suffix. Imposed, and you 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 just have to become familiar with them if they're ones that you're using in your uh, practice. So, where are we currently with biosimilars in the U.S.? Well, the starting point is find out when originator biologic therapies patents expire. Uh, So, we list here that biologic cancer treatments with more than twenty billion dollars in global spending targets biosimilar development. Uh, many of these have expired over the last five, four or five years. Uh, you can even go, excuse me, even go back to uh, Pohutin Alpha, which, which expired uh, uh, before that. Uh, in, in Europe, uh, you see at the bottom, but let's just look at the the U.S. Uh, the uh, Pegfograstin patent expired in 2015. You see, the anti-cancer biosimilars uh, patent expirations have been more recent and thus the release of these and approval and release of these is more recent as well. So here's a list, and I'll show you a a little simpler list in a second, but of uh, the approved biosimilars in the U.S., and you see how rapidly uh, these have come along. So again, going back to the far left-hand side, you see that Grassham SNDZ, supportive care, white cell growth factor uh, that was approved, Um, In 2015, uh, the first uh, true biosimilar, there was an agent that was approved as a biosimilar in Europe, uh, but went through an originator pathway because the FDA hadn't established uh, its regulatory authority over biosimilars, and that's thibault phil But that's technically not a biosimilar uh, by uh, by FDA definition. Uh, And then, uh, of course, there are other uh, biosimilar supportive care agents, Uh, filgrassin, peg filgrassin that have come along. And then over the last couple of years, we've seen some of these large monoclonal anti-cancer therapy biosimilars come along, including Bevacizumab, Trastuzumab, and Rituximab. Uh, And so these are now multiple biosimilars that are out there. And I'll just show you kind of um, looking at the left-hand side are the supportive care biosimilars in the EU in, in Europe on the left-hand side and in the U.S. And you can quickly see how farther ahead the, Europe is in terms of uh, regulating and approving these <clears throat> going, going back nearly 10 years. The FDA approvals, we now have two filgrastim biosimilars. We have two PEG biosimilars. We also have a Poet and Alpha biosimilar. It's not on here. <clears throat> and then on the right-hand side are the anti-cancer biosimilars, and we have two rituximab biosimilars uh, for lymphoma. We have actually five trastuzumab biosimilars. I mentioned one earlier uh, with that issue around drift, uh, but there are now five biosimilar trastuzumabs and an originator, so six choices there, and two bevacizumab biosimilars. Not all, not all of these are on the shelf at the moment. There are patent disputes uh, that some of these have been embroiled in, what we call patent dance, because many of these agents have multiple patents on different components or different steps in the process. Uh, So in an effort to to side rail or delay uh, approval and marketing of biosimilars, sometimes these patents have ended up in court. Uh, But nonetheless, these are the FDA approved biosimilars that will eventually make their way into clinical uh, uh, practice and uh, hopefully into pathways and guidelines. Now, before we talk about the integration in the pathways, uh, I have to address some of these concerns uh, that I've heard expressed by clinical colleagues and and probably by patients. But I I think that patients are depending on clinicians to guide them and advise them on whether these are truly safe and efficacious to to utilize. So there is uh, remaining skepticism about the FDA process for this. And my only response to that is, you know, we've really looked at this, the, the, the uh, regulatory process that's put in place, uh, the, safe, uh, the, the safeguards. And as you saw, it's not just the biosimilars that may be vulnerable uh, to some changes that need to be monitored and caught early, it's the originator as well. I think you can, you can think of the, the biosimilars as the most recent version of the original molecule, so the biosimilar trastuzumab that have been approved uh, were developed and re- uh, regu- regulatory approvals based on all these, as, as I said, more than 60 analytic quality measures. That was not the case back when Herceptin and, and Rituxan were originally developed. Uh, the technology, the analytic capability of companies and the FDA to uh, to, to review these and approve them has vastly improved over the last decade and a half. So uh, in many ways, uh, you could potentially argue uh, that there's more quality assurance behind many of the biosimilars than there is over the original, er, originator. Uh, nonetheless, there's, there's some uh, skepticism that remains. Uh, there also is this perception that it will be Mainly cost that drives this, and I can't deny cost is, a, is an issue. It's one of the motivations for developing and bringing these into the marketplace. Um, uh, but at your own institution, I think it's important to put safety and efficacy first, uh, and then cost uh, uh, may come in if there's no difference in safety and efficacy. Uh, there's this perception of switching uh, from the uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to from a originator to a biosimilar may not be safe, and I think we now have abundant real-world data to suggest that there's not really solid evidence for that. Um, uh, there's concern that payer formularies will require uh, biologic uh, f- uh, failure before allowing a switching, Uh, We're still waiting for these interchangeable biosimilars to come along. So thus, ASCO and other organizations, including here, are trying to educate professionals about what these agents are, the processes involved, uh, where we are in the approval process, uh, and also uh, their integration, again, into clinical practice and into pathways and and guidelines. We've uh, integrated the supportive care biosimilars into ASCO growth factor guidelines. This goes back... Uh, now uh, three or four years, uh, and these are being updated, but presumably biosimilars, uh, white cell growth factors, will also be uh, integrated in into the ASCO update. Uh, they've already been uh, uh, integrated. Uh, we just updated the NCCN growth factor uh, guidelines, and all the approved biosimilars are uh, mentioned as alternatives, uh, safe and efficacious choices that you have, Uh, if you're going to use uh, a white cell growth factor filgrastim or peg filgrastim. So uh, so the guidelines have integrated them, and I think it it makes sense at this point that pathways likewise integrate uh, these agents into their their steps. Obviously, one of the issues is that supportive care biologics or biosimilars is one thing. Anti-cancer biosimilars where it's treating the cancer and it may be a, a kind of a life and death issue uh, may be quite uh, different. Nonetheless, uh, the NCCN board of directors I think two or three weeks ago said they uh, have reviewed and have accepted the FDA process for regulatory approval of these biosimilars and are encouraging the uh, pa- the uh, guideline Committees to integrate biosimilar versions of their therapies into guidelines. This just illustrates the, the updated NCCN breast cancer guidelines, and you'll see there's a footnote. If, if you look at the details in this guideline that's added uh, biosimilar versions of trastuzumab, these will be automatically put in as options uh, for the, the provider to choose from in addition to the originator. So ASCO issued this position statement. I was privileged to chair the uh, working group that developed this uh, position statement. This was published in JCO uh, a little over a year ago. And it basically addresses all these things we've talked about, uh, the difference between generic and uh, and biologic uh, therapies, what biosimilarity is, the regulatory uh, approval process, and issues like interchangeability and extrapolation. So it's all in there, and I just refer you... Uh, to that document uh, if you uh, want to read more about it. We highlight in there uh, issues around uh, safety a- a- and efficacy, and we came out with the statement, biosimilars uh, will play, uh, if they haven't already, an important role in the future care of patients with cancer and will improve access to valuable medicines. Uh, there are the issues, again, around interchangeability that are yet to be worked out. The name- naming and labeling has created some confusion, uh, but there's a justification for being sure which agent you're using. Uh, The value of biosimilars is discussed in this document as well as in the value of cancer care uh, task force documents uh, that have been issued. Uh, And, and of course, uh, there's a need at each of the annual meetings and podcasts in between to continue to educate ourselves and our colleagues and our patients about These processes and and provide answers to their questions. Uh, So I'll just uh, this is where I think the rubber meets the road, which is uh, finding the right balance uh, of evidence between uh, biosimilar requiring uh, the approval process being too onerous, uh, too large, uh, but driving up the cost of development and therefore basically negating the opportunity to reduce prices of these agents if they're approved. Uh, on the other hand, if the approval process is too lax or too, too weak, uh, while well, the development costs will probably be less, uh, the, the, the concern is that healthcare providers may not embrace them and use them as well. And, and if there's not utilization of these as opposed to the more expensive originators, um, it kind of defeats the purpose as well. So finding that right balance is, is critical. I mentioned Europe is out about a decade ahead of us, and I think we should all be reassured. Uh, that over that decade, they now have 25 oncology biosimilars approved. They have not had to withdraw any of their biosimilars because of efficacy and safety concerns. The EU Monitoring for Safety has not identified any relevant differences in the severity of frequency adverse events and their their efficacy. I will mention one caution, which is they now have 10 years of data to show how that uptake distributes across practices. It's quite clear Even in Europe, oncologists and hematologists were more likely to use biosimilar versions of these molecules in later stage disease or in patients not being necessarily treated for curative intent. And it's only over time where the comfort level's been developed where they're using them upfront or using them in curative setting. Nonetheless, over this period of time, uh, no red flags have emerged. So will biosimilars be accepted much like they have in Europe? when they get uh, into practice in the U.S. And how rapid will that be? We really don't know. We have early signs from the growth factors, uh, but I'm, it's just far too early. Uh, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed uh, a few weeks ago that said it's time to throw in the towel on biosimilars uh, in, in the U.S. And the reality is it's just far too early because we, ha- we ha- do we have a little data uh, on the, the supportive care biosimilars, but virtually no data on the uptake and, and impact of the anti-cancer biosimilars on, uh, on pricing and health care uh, So, and, and in the end, will these improve access uh, to these therapies, reduce disparities, reduce financial uh, burden? Again, we don't know uh, the potential is there. Uh, this just illustrates that that potential and how it's realized will depend on how much price reduction results uh, and how much companies are willing to uh, reduce the price of their biosimilars when they get in the market compared to the originator. So the, this illustrates the, the uh, scenarios of 20% price reduction, 30% or 40%. You can see how much money, 50 to $100 billion, uh, in, 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 looking at eight key products in the e, EU and the U.S., could be saved uh, depending on the degree of price reduction. As I mentioned, we do have some data on the uh, myeloid growth factors, and uh, the top curve just shows the use of filgrastim uh, in the U.S. It hasn't changed very much. Maybe it's drifted down a tiny bit. And the bottom, it shows how the use of the originator has uh, fallen off uh, uh, over the first couple of years uh, through the end of 2016, and the use of biosimilar uh, uh, philgrastom has increased and now is approaching 50% of the market share. And I th- saw some more recent data for 2018 uh, suggesting perhaps as high as uh, two-thirds to three-quarters uh, of philgrastom use is is biosimilar. Uh, again, we'll see where that uh, plateaus or ends up. Uh, in terms of cost, uh, again, very early data, only on the growth factors, uh, and it's a complex slide, but just to, show, to compare the uh, uh, the originator here, uh, and the, either the cost uh, per, do, uh, per day or the cost per patient, uh, you can see uh, if you compare that to uh, the, the true biosimilar filgrastin, there's about a 10% price reduction, uh, ranging from 8 to 12% that, that's been reflected. Whether that'll be true of all the uh, uh, biosimilars or whether we'll achieve that 20%, 30% price reduction is yet to be determined. So there are opportunities and challenges here as we begin to close. Uh, uh, we want to reduce this unsustainable increase in healthcare care costs. And the biosumers, as I said at the beginning, one piece of that puzzle It's not the whole solution, but it may uh, help us towards that goal. Uh, The approval, however, of these agents is based on more limited clinical data, so we have to educate ourselves and our colleagues. We need to uh, monitor these over time. Pharmacovigilance will be key to this. We need to be aware of this issue of drift, uh, variability, immunogenicity, and continue to monitor both the originator and the biosimilar. Interchangeability is yet to come, but probably will come at some point. Uh, I will just mention there's an administrative burden. We've discussed that, you know, actually, uh, over the last couple of days with some colleagues, uh, that in, at least in our uh, arena, where you have five biosimilar trastuzumab and an originator uh, and multiple insurers, and, and the insurers often drive the decision on which of these to use, uh, the, our pharmacy needs to stock all these agents, and that creates challenges, administrative challenges, uh, that, uh, at the institutional practice level, uh, that uh, hopefully uh, uh, will uh, be uh, improved on over time. But I, th- I think, it, again, this comes with challenges as well as opportunities. Uh, and I do think it's very clear that high-quality, clinically-driven pathways can provide an opportunity to improve the integration of these into clinical practice, uh, improve efficiency and effectiveness of care, whether it's supportive care or cancer treatment, and access to high-quality care at a, a more reasonable uh, cost so our, our opportunities here additional agents at lower cost, uh, as, as savings and efficiencies to the health system, as well as hopefully eventually to patients, uh, increase access to these uh, these exciting biologic therapies, foster innovation, as I mentioned, these analytic care t- uh, tests that were developed were largely developed as a result of the the uh, the need to regulatory do regulatory approval of biosimilars so there has been innovation that's resulted out of this whole process and hopefully will continue to refine refine uh, uh, the development and monitoring of these agents and ultimately we hope we will we'll see improvement in healthcare outcomes so uh, uh, biosimilar agents are here to stay uh, they are out there their use is very early I would say that the uh, rumors about their demise uh, are f- greatly exaggerated, and they, uh, they're probably going to be with us, and we need at least, uh, I would argue, five to ten years to know whether we're seeing meaningful reductions in health care costs and uh, whether, again, in the U.S. setting, we, as opposed to Europe, see any uh, red flags in terms of safety and efficacy deviation. Uh, the uptake of these will depend on very close monitoring, and integration into clinically-driven uh, pathways and, and guidelines. And we need to continue to educate ourselves, and we're, we're charged with doing that uh, throughout uh, the U.S. Uh, so that people understand the goals here, uh, the processes, and uh, the, the, the value of integrating biosimilars into modern oncology care. Thank you. So um, I I know we're short on time, but uh, glad to uh, take any questions after the session. That would be great. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. Sure thing. Thank you.